Hey, what's up, podcast listeners? On today's episode of The Colin and Samir Show, we interview Michelle Carre, who's truly the most badass human on YouTube. She's trained with NASA astronauts, the SWAT team, the Marines, and even the FBI. And you'll hear that story later in the episode. Her channel is really unique in the challenges she takes on, but it's also really unique because of its production quality, as well as the time it takes Michelle to produce a single episode. And we get into that in this interview. We also talked to Michelle about how she built her YouTube channel to 2.7 million subscribers and how she's building a business as a multifaceted creator, entrepreneur, host, producer, stunt woman, all the above. You'll hear all about it. And before we get into this episode, we do want to ask a quick favor from all of you. If you could review the show, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you could give us a review, that would be awesome. Really helps us out on the show. All right. Now for our interview with Michelle Carre. So I spent the last week really diving into your content oh, and no. watching a lot of it. And um, one of your most recent videos is your SWAT video. Mm-hmm. This week on Challenge Accepted, I am going to SWAT Academy, all leading up to a high stakes final challenge where I will be going on a mock mission with a real life SWAT team. Challenge accepted. And Going through your episodes, I think one of the most interesting things to me was the production quality and how similar it is to um, television and what we grew up watching, but then how much it acknowledges YouTube. And I'm just (laughs) I'm just curious if you could walk us through that swap video and how you think about composing one of these episodes specifically for YouTube or if you even are thinking about YouTube while you're shooting them. Oh, we absolutely are. Um, Thank you for noticing, by the way. Um, Well, I think when I I started my own channel, I really wanted to make a point to hire people who had experience in traditional. So my fiance and Garrett over there, he's the creative director. He has a really strong background in directing, editing, went to film school like you. our editor worked on Dance Moms. He has a really strong background in reality. And several of the other people on our team have a documentary background. Mm. So my goal was to take my background in digital, merge it with traditional, because I think there's a lot to be learned from traditional, right? There's a lot we can lose as well. But for example, reality TV has existed since the early 2000s. And only now, probably in the past six years, have we seen people adopt reality TV practices into their work. For example, I think of the 2014 to 2017 vlog era, like Logan Paul, Jake Paul is very Steve-O. I think of a lot of the best non-scripted stuff or even what Eric is doing on his own channel, the dating Mm -hmm, videos, for mm -hmm. example. I mean, that's also early 2000s reality in a lot of ways. So- we wanted to, you know, history repeats itself and there's a lot that can be learned. We take a lot of those elements from traditional reality TV, our favorite documentaries. I'm always watching documentary, but then I also look at YouTube meta. What makes the most sense? Okay, well, in a Netflix documentary, they're going to really live in this particular scene. But if I'm editing it for YouTube, we're going to take these three bites and move on and still keep the same mm. essence of the scene. So that is sort of my goal because my ultimate goal would be to get nominated for an Emmy for Challenge Accepted next year. Wow. Because I kind of want to be traditional at their own game. Wow. Hmm. That's very cool. There's one thing that we often say, which is don't make TV for the internet. And I think watching your show has kind of proved us wrong in a way or showed us how you can take traditional 
and turn it into an internet show. In a SWAT video in particular, you go through like four challenges in the first two minutes. In order to pass, I need to sprint a quarter mile in under 85 seconds, do 30 sit-ups in a minute, 20 push-ups in a minute, six pull-ups, and then complete the obstacle course in under four minutes, all back to back to back. That type of action would never happen on television. Right. right. Like you give away too much. Exactly. Right. And so it was really interesting that like that as a tangible example of being like, oh, no, this is not TV for the Internet. This is YouTube. And exactly. it's the first time we've seen it at that production quality. Thank you. How do you um, today, because I imagine you have a ton of experience how do you pitch the show challenge accepted? Like if we, if we're hopping on the, <laughs> the log line, yeah, if, well, if we're hopping on the phone right now, like how do you explain what the show is? So challenge accepted is a documentary series wherein I take on the world's most intense and unique professions, lifestyles, and communities for an extended period of time to see how far an amateur can go under the best training possible. I knew you would have that locked. locked. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew that was going to be locked. I could feel it. That was great. <laughs> it had to be because for a long time, because it's such a, it's such an interesting show because I, I think there are a lot of shows where, you know, a lot of reality shows show celebrities trying something for a day, right? Yeah. And we've seen that format. It's really cool. But what we're doing is very different because I want to, I want to really push myself. Um, I want to fully immerse myself into whatever I'm committing to. When I, for example, uh, I just finished a challenge where I trained like a competitive cheerleader. For that, I changed my entire lifestyle. Nine to five, my job changes. I'm going to training, I'm doing ice baths, I'm watching videos, I'm reviewing my footage, I'm you know watching tutorials, I'm training with a private coach, I'm going to different gyms. I wanna commit fully. And I think that's what makes Challenge Accepted unique is the commitment level. That's really cool. I, I also just love that you can describe your show and your format to us. I think that is a practice that all creators should work on because you, if you can't explain it, then how can the audience understand it? Right. Like, and word of mouth is still the best growth strategy. Someone turning to someone else and saying, hey, you should check out this show called Challenge Accepted. It's where, and if they can't fill that back part in, it's they're not even going to suggest the show because it's hard to explain. And it expands beyond that because you think of, you know, when you get to a certain level, you have agents, you have managers pitching for you. It needs to be yes. good enough so that their Diet Coke version of, you know, your Coke version of it actually makes sense to whoever's mm -hmm. going to work with you. Totally. These videos that you're making take a long time to make. Yes. And that is... <laughs> Inefficient, I, but. <laughs> I, not necessarily inefficient, but I think it's like a newer version of the culture on YouTube. Like for example, so far this year, Mr. Beast has put out three videos, right? And that's like four or five months. He's only put out three videos. I think there's a culture that's moving in the direction of, you know, less and higher quality, but to take that amount of time to make a video that is kind of suggesting that you have some way of financing production and I'm just curious, like, what are the constraints you're under to do something like that, where you can take three months to make a video? Uh, how does that work from, from supporting your team, supporting your business, growing what you're doing? Like, how does, how, what, what are the economics of that? Or how does that, how does that net out? It's a really great question. Um, so obviously what we're doing is pretty different from most people. We don't have a regular upload schedule necessarily. Videos take anywhere from one week to one year to film. There have been two episodes that took an entire year to film. Wow. Mm. Um, 
And I think that the way that we approach it is we sort of have a few different buckets of income flow. So first I have my fitness app, MK Fit. You can download it. First month is a dollar. Um, we also have, you know, just natural, I, I call it like the baseline AdSense of if you don't mm-hmm. upload anything for a month, you can expect at least this baseline. That's one. Um, and then we, we do rely heavily on brand deals. But what I like, the way I like to approach brand deals is a little bit different. I actually make like full pitch decks for our entire slate. Because we take so long to make the videos, I know all the videos we're filming all the way through September of this year already. Mm. They're already planned, they're booked, flights, everything. Wow. So yeah. with that ammunition, we can go to a wide variety of sponsors and get a higher dollar value amount because we have so much information, not only on what we're filming, but also on the track record of the channel. We know that an episode of Challenge Accepted could get this many views. We know that because FBI did well, a video of of similar um, category could also potentially do just as well. So Mm. I like to plan. (laughs) Would you rank the SWAT video on the more expensive end of the spectrum when it comes to your videos? No. No. SWAT is probably one of the more affordable videos. Oh, interesting. So the reason that SWAT is more affordable, let's say, it's still expensive. <laughs> still pretty freaking expensive is because it's only shot over a few days. Now, albeit they're very jam-packed days, but it's just that week. When I commit to something for an extended period of time and we're involving coaches, multiple filming days, training montages, meaning we have to film like 12 different days and then cut it into 60 seconds to give the appearance of me progressing over time, that is when things add up. And I would say that the current episode I'm training for right now, boxing is probably the most expensive one because I'm training five days a week, multiple coaches, nutritionist, ice bath. Does it ever, (laughs) does it ever scare you to make the upfront investment like that? Or is it the sponsors and like some of your episodes don't have sponsors? Yeah. Boxing doesn't have a sponsor. doesn't have a sponsor. So like, is that upfront investment, is it like, do you look at it as the AdSense that's generated by this video, or is it more of the holistic picture of the business and the catalog of like this, I'm investing in this and it will add to the overarching, you know, income generated by the company. I would say it's more of that. Got it. Um, you know, will boxing outperform 911, which we shot in a day. We shot that video in a day. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that video really did super well. So, but for me, honestly, I like investing in life experiences. Boxing, however it performs, is one of the best life experiences I have encountered. Getting to work with an Olympic athlete for the extended period of time I have, the mental and emotional growth I have had from that. I can't put a view count or a monetary amount on that. So as long as we can afford it in the time, let's do it. That's sort of how I operate. Maybe it's not the most That's cool. financially savvy, but I like to invest in life experiences. The interesting thing, though, is that YouTube does facilitate the opportunity for the numbers to even out. And, yeah. and I was listening to one of your early podcasts, and this may be outdated, but you said that episodes can cost anywhere from $10,000 to $30,000. Yeah. And in that time period, those numbers for the amount of views you're doing, actually from an AdSense perspective, can even out. A little right? bit. A little bit. The sponsors are definitely necessary for yeah, our business yeah. operation. Yeah. And I mean, it's not efficient. I mean, sure, we're doing millions of views, but like Mr. Beast, even in his early days, shoots a video in a day and he gets 10 million views. Yeah. So we're at this point in time trying to 
have all of these plates going of like, how can we rival traditional, go for awards in that category, but then also do well on YouTube. And sometimes, you know, should we cut things out that typically a year ago we would have kept in to make it better for retention? Yeah. Like we're trying to balance all of all of that at one time. Yeah. When, when we pop around to those other business functions, like brand deals now, I guess like, how do you think about what is required to be a creator who does well in brand deals? And how's that be their top line of revenue? I think to do well in brand deals, you have to be thinking in the mindset of advertisers. We will make videos specifically that have no other logos and brands in them that we think are just gonna perform super well, um, like the etiquette video, that when a brand comes along, it's a perfect placement for them. Um, sometimes we, for example, I did a video that's coming out this month where I spent a week with the US Army. And for that, that was actually a, um, you know, an outreach thing that I wanted to do. I had seen that the army has done paid placement with other creators mm -hmm. before. And I was like, I think we could do this and make it really awesome. So I actually pitched to them um, through, through my representation. I think that it is about like, like when we talk about brand friendliness, I feel like there's this connotation of made for kids or it has to be super clean. And I think it just has to be respectful and genuine to you. Hmm. Um, there are brands that reach out to us wanting to offer a substantial amount of money that we decline because we're like, it just doesn't make sense. And it's going to inflame our audience because to me, the most important person in our business is the audience. Yeah. Um, and I, I would take that over any brand deal anytime. Yeah. I saw the, your Marine video is sponsored by the Marines. Yeah. I want to say a special shout out to the U.S. Marine Corps for sponsoring this video and allowing me to do something that very few civilians get to do. That's so interesting. Uh, it's such a like it's almost I guess in that sense, it's like branded content. Yes. Right. Uh, do they have a lot of say in the edit or how it comes together when you do something like that? When you work with the Army or the Marines, are they looking? Yeah. When you're working with a client like the U.S. government, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of rules. Um, but what has been really helpful to us is we have done so many of these deals, we actually have a process. So whenever a brand, we work with them, I have a list of like 12 questions they have to answer before we sign a contract. So that's Got like, it. what's the length of the ad placement? What are the talking points? How many rounds of feedback? What is the timeline? That kind of stuff. So we're super, super clear before the contract. Because sometimes you sign a contract and you figure that out later. I want to know the exact plan before any of that mm -hmm. is made. And from that, we're able to proactively shoot something that fits what the brand wants, but is also going to be a viral video for us. And in the case of the U.S. Army, actually, the original pitch they came to us was completely different from what we ended up with. And we pushed back and, and we're like, this is the version we're pitching right now is actually what's going to perform well and be what our audience wants. And we were able to meet in the middle before anything was signed, which was That's really cool. great. Is that something you learned from experiencing the opposite or is that kind of training you got even as far back as Buzzfeed of like being that ahead of schedule or that ahead of like what problems may arise? I definitely learned it on the job. I would say more because at Buzzfeed, I never did branded content. I never yeah. interfaced. That was a completely different department. And also just from like, my dad is an entrepreneur and business owner himself. So he was constantly like, you need to read everything and yeah. best understand it. And, and I think too, like we've all been in positions where brands have taken advantage of, 
us as creators or ask for more than previously stated. So for me, I'm like, let's get really clear. Are you going to ask for those things? Okay. That is X dollars more, or we don't want to do that. I like to proactively ask all the problems that can arise ahead of time. I love what you even said about like keeping the episodes clean of other logos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just in case. I think that's something that a lot of creators don't think about. Mm-hmm. And when I look at your videos, they are so clean. I looked at your catalog and how many seasons have you done of Challenge Accepted? This is our third season. And I was looking at those and thinking like the opportunity that these would get licensed potentially and end up on another platform seems so ripe because they are so clean. I'm available. <laughs> is, is that something that you thought about going into it or that's no, ever not come really. your way? What we felt when we first watched it was like a network could pick up this stuff, right? Like they literally pick up Challenge Accepted as a show and distribute it as is on, on a show, whether that's Discovery, Disney Plus, um, HBO We've Max. We've talked to them before. You have talked mm. to them about picking up pre-existing episodes or filming new episodes. And is that part of your aspiration or is YouTube actually, have you reached that point of like, this is the pinnacle of making my own show is controlling my own distribution? Well, from the beginning, like most of us, I had a dream of like, Oh, I want to be on a TV show or whatever. And what's interesting is as challenge accepted grew, we started getting a lot of interest from production companies. And we were taking these meetings with huge, like people who have made the best Emmy winning non-scripted content of all time. And what was interesting is we would go in these meetings and they would be like, we love challenge accepted. We want to do it just like it. And then I would tell them how long it takes to make the episodes. They'd be like, walk us through a production process. And I'm like, okay, so for the video where I train like an Olympic figure skater for 60 days, we have a month of prep. I train for 60 days, then six weeks of post. And they're like, wait, so you spend five months on a video? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm like literally training for 60 days. What do you think is going on? And they would be like, well, is there another way we can do this? But like in a week. And I was like, what is the point of giving up my IP of something I, you know, is a beloved part of my life at this point and theoretically going to a network that my audience is going to assume has more money and therefore should be bigger production to do something that could be a reality show from 2002 of any celebrity trying something for a day. I just think I thought it was stupid. So mm. <laughs> I said, no like more money for a watered down version. Yeah. Exactly. Of what and I'm less control. Doing. You know what I will say though, is I feel like TV often has access to whatever they're filming. It's like you watch a TV show, especially reality TV, I'm amazed that like they have access to celebrities, to organizations like you have access to, right? Like I'm always amazed that you do back up the title thumbnail. You are actually with, you know, SWAT or FBI or whatever it is. How do you go about getting that type of access? Like that to me is something that I find to be really rare on YouTube that does actually separate often YouTube from television. I think it's two things. I think it's a track record, legitimacy. The resume of our YouTube channel is completely different from most other creators. Um, and also, people ask me all the time, how did you get to work with the FBI? And here's what happened. I'll, I'll just tell you guys. Yeah. We found a 1-800 number on the website, like FBI.gov. No. <laughs> we call the 1-800 number. I'm like, there's no way this is going to work. And Garrett's like, just call him. Just see what happens. And they're like, oh, here's an email you can email. You know, they gave us some generic 
request at FBI.gov. I don't even know. It was something like that. So I, I put together a proposal and I, I wrote an email, send it, nothing. We hear nothing back for four months. And then completely out of the blue, I get an email and it says, your request has been approved. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, Garrett, the <laughs> FBI has approved our request. What's going on? And um, then from there, they connected us with Jeff, the Hollywood guy. He's called the Hollywood guy okay. in the FBI. And he's- Wait, he, he works at the FBI. Yeah, and he's and called he's the, the, F- Hollywood the Hollywood guy. guy. That's his wow. job title at FBI. Well, no, maybe not his official job title, but that's what everybody calls him. Okay. Wait, so also it's so FBI that they weren't like, let's get on a call. They were like, request. Let's go. <laughs> so we connect with Jeff, the Hollywood guy. So he is the person- <laughs> So a lot of these organizations have a Hollywood PR kind of person who, you know, you think of those like crime procedural shows that involve the FBI in a scripted capacity. He's the person who reviews those scripts and Mm. approves them and makes sure it's not defaming or whatever to the FBI. So he connected with us and he's like, well, I'm retiring in a month. Let's just see what happens. And he he had never approved another YouTuber before, but he was like... I'm retiring, so who cares? Okay. Timing. <laughs> yeah, so we got really, you know, yeah. uh, you know, got a great opportunity there. And then from there, we sort of just followed the same format. So again, I think a well-placed email can open any door. And in this case, it was the door to Quantico. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. 1-800 great, FBI. Yeah, 1-800 SWAT. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even, do you remember? It's like 1-888-FBI-HELP or something. Yeah, we yeah. You just Google it. Let's call them right now. Let's get them on the phone. That's incredible. Don't say I sent you. I don't want them to have a bunch of people calling. I'm curious. So for us, a lot of times our video cycle takes about like two weeks. And there are That's times so when <laughs> our videos don't turn out the way we wanted them to. Things go wrong and the videos don't come out. And it's devastating. And those videos take us two weeks. Mm-hmm. Has there ever been a moment for you where you've taken three months, six months, a year, and the video doesn't net out? How do you deal with that? Or is that something that you don't deal oh, with man. anymore? Are you just hitting home runs? Yeah, like do you just understand <laughs> it so well now that um, that's not a problem? I mean, there have been, do you mean like where you scrap the project altogether? Yeah. Or you upload it and the viewership's not where you want it to be and okay. it just didn't perform. Like when I you invest that much time, how do you deal with? You oh, know? it's oh. painful. It's very painful. But I like to approach whenever we hit upload, it's a video we love, you know, we can't control the views. We can't control how it hits the algorithm. We can do everything we can to make the title as clickable and, you know, do as many options for the thumbnail, A-B tests, whatever. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't hit, I mean, it's, it's devastating. But the one thing I can hold on to is I'm proud of the video. Mm-hmm. Never upload anything I'm not proud of. I think that's a really interesting and um, important point for a lot of creators to hear around success metrics and exploring what makes a video successful. Is it exclusively performance, like, like viewership. And I don't think it can be, I think as creators to build a long lasting career, you have to have something else. That's even if it's as simple as I'm proud of the creative, uh, because what's interesting is you'll see, even when something doesn't perform, like you mentioned, we've seen where the videos have a profound impact on the people who did watch it. Yes. And so I think that's such an important thing to recognize too, is that you might not be building as much width all the time, but you're building depth with your audience. I love what you just said, because at the beginning of my own personal channel, and I think a lot of creators experience this, you just want to 
throw as much stuff at the wall, see what sticks, yeah. and you're really going for views, or at least I was. Right. You, you do what you can for views. But then I sort of got to this point where half the content on my channel was stuff that when people recognized me on the street, I was like, you know, I don't know if I, I want to be known for the other stuff I'm mm. doing, not, not this category A. I want to be known for category B, which for me was these deep, intensive challenges I was doing. So my goal was to reduce as much of category A and pump it all into B. And now I, I only want to do content I love. And I think that it, it, it's, a, it's a tough investment to make because you might see, a, you know, it's hard to avoid the low hanging fruit. You know, when you see an opportunity for, oh, I can make that video or that short and it'll do super, super well. And to say no to that and invest in something you care about more. But I've actually found that the return on that investment is even better because brands respect you more. Um, over time, subscribers respect you more because they really have, they know that they're coming for high quality every single time. Mm. Because, you know, a YouTube channel is a resume, but it's a very interesting resume because when a brand or anyone, you know, potential partner, even a potential subscriber comes to look at it, you can't control what they're going to click on. And that one thing they click on could make or break why they decide to work with you or subscribe to you. And I wanna make sure every single piece of content, even if it doesn't have a ton of views, is one that shows the quality of the channel. That's, that's really good. I like that a lot. Just the concept that you can't control what people are gonna land on. Where does the inspiration come for this show? Is it a mix of traditional and digital? Like, how do you come up with this unique show that you have? Well, for me, I was actually a professional athlete first. My name is Michelle Carre. I am the reigning U23 national champion for cycling. And this year is my first year riding as a professional. So I was a professional cyclist. At the same time, I was working my nine to five job right out of college. And it sort of got to this point where I was like, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I loved being a cyclist was that I felt like I had this unique opportunity to encourage more women to do it. I mean, also just being a person of color too, I was often the, the only person of color at a lot of the races I attended. And then I realized that with digital, I could use my athletic background to hit a more broad range of things and not only uplift those communities, but also show someone who looks like me doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so choosing to give that up to do challenge accepted was a really, really big decision for me. But I think it's born out of like my passion for athleticism and challenging myself innately. Um, I prefer to be a jack of all trades than a master of one. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, I love documentary content. I consume it all the time. And I, I just feel like there is this really unique opportunity on YouTube to support an ecosystem that doesn't require someone else green lighting it. Mm. So I want to support that way more personally. I remember when I was growing up, the only, the only representation of what it was like to be Indian, like the primary one was Apu uh, on the Simpsons, yes. which was like not played by an Indian and it was like a caricature. Right. And so there was not any connection to, you know, what I looked like or, or, you know, that I could do something in entertainment. Uh, and I think that was, that was something that also drove me. And I was curious if you could speak a bit more about the concept of representation as a female uh, of color on YouTube, which is predominantly right now, I would say dominated by white males. Yeah. I mean, some of my, the reason that I feel like I avoided 
this industry for so long was because even growing up doing school plays, where am I going to fit in in hairspray or mm. Oklahoma? You know yeah. what I mean? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I felt like just by nature, it was like, there's literally not a part for me to play that makes sense in, in this area of the world and why waste time on it. Now, what I really admire about YouTube is that it gives that opportunity. Um, and it honestly wasn't until I started making the videos and seeing comments from people that were like, I've never seen an Indian woman portrayed as strong before. I've mm. never, um, you know, seen somebody who looks like me literally doing this. I've never met a firefighter that is your height or skin color. And not that I'm actually becoming any of those things, but that I'm inviting the possibility for that to happen. I didn't think was groundbreaking. I was like, let's just do a great video. You know, it, it sort of came out of that for me. And I think I'll always have a little bit of like, I want to prove traditional wrong when I think about, I mean, I've, I've had, I've had auditions. So like I auditioned for stuff like theatrically in um, Hollywood and I've been told, oh, well, you're not Indian enough to do this because I'm half Indian. But then, you know, well, we weren't really looking for someone who looks like you for this. Can you read for the Latina role? I'm like, literally, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, that's just super inappropriate, yeah. but I've been told these things and it's just a waste of my time. Why would I sit here trying to prove to somebody that I deserve to be there when I can do it myself? And there are millions of people who champion it and are right there behind me. I'm definitely going to go in that direction. And I want to support a platform that invites that opportunity. Mm. Traditional doesn't give that opportunity. Even if I'm like the token person of color in whatever TV show as a guest star, cool, great for them. They get to check off that diversity thing. And, you know, maybe eventually down the line, they'll put someone who looks like me as the lead, but why not do it now and challenge them? Like get off your ass and make it happen now. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. It's, it's really clear to me as I look at your channel that your why for making these videos does come off the platform from that yeah, history. Absolutely. Because in the challenge genre, I feel like it's very easy for creators to come up with the title thumbnail first mm -hmm. for something so bizarre that is just made for a title thumbnail yes. that is not necessarily based in like a personal experience. Yes. And I feel like with your channel, it's so clear that like the goal is the personal experience that you go through. It happens to mesh really well with the YouTube algorithm and with a title thumbnail, but that's not the basis for the idea. Of course. I want the title to be so astounding and deliver on the premise. Mm -hmm. I tried FBI Academy. What? She went to the FBI? Yeah. And yeah. you're actually going to see that in the video. It's right, not yeah. me hiring an FBI agent to train me for a day. We are literally going to the mm. FBI Academy. Do you consider yourself as a part of the challenge genre on YouTube? Like when you look at Mr. Beast, you look at Ryan Trahan, Eric, do you see all of you in the same genre or no? Well, even within that, I think that Mr. Beast and Ryan Trahan are completely different creators. Mm. I guess technically it's challenge, but I think more broadly, we're all non-scripted in a certain way. I yeah. feel like I align more with non-scripted than I do the connotation of what people think in challenge, mm -hmm. it, which is very strange because challenge yeah. is the name of the series, yeah. like challenge accepted. Um, but when I think of challenges on YouTube, I think of something that's grand and big for the title and thumbnail and lasts a day typically, um, which is great. 
Whereas I feel like how I want to differentiate from that is the documentary storytelling perspective, really highlighting the communities that do this every single day. Yeah. I mean, going to train like a firefighter is different from going to firefighter Academy because we're going to meet the people who have worked at the biggest wildlife yeah. you know, fires True. in the world who have, you know, gone to Australia on deployment during the 2020 fires who have really seen stuff firsthand. And honestly, things that I can't even say that I challenged myself to do. I, I always want to make sure that we include an element in the videos, highlighting the people who do this every single day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, Empathy is a really interesting ingredient in your videos. Um, like the 911 dispatch video where you kind of look and you say, okay, well, wow, I've never thought about the people who actually work this job. And then further, if you go into the comments of your videos, I think what's really interesting is people reflecting that, but then also asking you to come join their community and do a challenge in their community. That must be a very special experience for you to have people look at what you're doing, not as, oh, she's exploiting our community for views or anything like that, or for her own personal gain, but actually, hey, she's showcasing our community to the world in a light that they've never seen. Empathy is the centerpiece of any challenge we take on. And sometimes we will con we'll convince somebody to work with us and we'll get in the meeting and they'll have a perception that we want to deliver like, a Hollywood watered down version of it, or I don't want the real thing. And a lot of times I'm in the meetings, I'm like, I want you to put me through my paces. I want you to, to give it to me real. Even if I fail on camera. Time. 555. 555. Okay. Good job. So obviously I have not passed the entrance qualifications for being a part of SDPD SWAT. Unfortunately you have not. Doing it with the vest is so much harder. That's awesome yeah because it shows how difficult it is for for anybody else to do it and how amazing it is that you can mm. go into a burning building with bravery and rescue a family i mean it would be insane to assume that after only a few days of training i could actually successfully do that and you know it's cool that that we get to have those experiences um but i am always like you know give it to us straight. Let's have yeah. the real experience. I think one of the craziest examples of those moments is the gas chamber in the uh, mm. Marine episode. Yeah. Like when you walk <laughs> out of that, it is crazy. Like your eyes are tearing up. There's like snot coming from your nose and you're like, holy shit. That was a real experience you just had. That is crazy. And then the thought of that is part of Marine training. Like that yeah. is something everyone has to do in Marine training. Right. And uh, part of your job. Yeah. The first thing I thought was, wow, we're both creators, but we sit in a chair. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like this is so drastically different. Yeah, um, exactly. I think there's a lot of ingredients when I look at Challenge Accepted as a format of why it is successful and why it's, it's garnering millions and millions of views. Um, I think when you look at it, like you open the show and you say, here's the thing I'm doing. So already there's a tension point, right? Because it's something that probably we've never seen before. FBI training, Marine training, SWAT training, even chess, right? These are things that we, we don't understand. So there's a tension point of, oh, I want to see, see what it's like for her to go through. And that's kind of the act one and the hook. And as you get into the act two, there's this like tension of the process of, well, what does it actually look like? And I want to keep watching because like now you're running an obstacle course and you're doing these things that basically introduce new tension points and release them constantly in the episode. Um, where you're given mini challenges within the grander challenge. The second part, I think, in that act two that's so interesting is that as an audience member, you're naturally drawn to be like, 
well, could I do that? And so every challenge you're doing, it, while I'm watching your show, my head is doing calculations on like, well, what would it be like for me if I did push-ups and then I had to run this obstacle course? How fast could I do the obstacle course? How many pull-ups could I do, right? Like it's, it's such an interesting active participation from the audience. And then act three is kind of this like conclusion and wrap up where you do a really good job of kind of bringing together this, uh, this whole experience and why it matters in the grander scheme of things. Mm -hmm. That is like pretty clear cut storytelling structure. For all of our episodes, even before we start filming, we outline the whole thing. We, we sort of, uh, we never script anything, but we can usually assume, okay, the gas chamber, that'll probably be a low point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so we kind of like fit those things in. We take all of the different activities I'm doing and we build them out as scenes. We anticipate, okay, this scene will probably be 90 seconds. This will be 30 seconds and build it out to see the runtime. We rearrange them. A lot of the times you're watching the episodes, they are completely out of order in the way we shot sure. them. Um, and then we always want the final challenge to be a culmination of everything. Is that something that, as you look back in your story, you know, you worked at BuzzFeed for some time. Is that something that you feel like learning the ingredients to make an internet video or make, you know, just documentary? Is that something you learned there? Is that something that you picked up prior to that? I didn't go to film school. So a lot of what I learned comes from Garrett, from Silas, our incredible editor, who have these really strong traditional backgrounds. And what I learned at BuzzFeed you know, BuzzFeed was a really interesting experience for me because it was grad school for YouTube and yeah. coming mm. from the Indian background, having a nine to five job in YouTube sounded better than uh, I'm going to go out, quit my job and do this thing. And it, it offered this really interesting opportunity for me to hone those skills of video making retention. I mean, we had classes on how to make a thumbnail and how to choose a title, right. which was which was really really interesting experience for me to learn, but always the goal was to be my own content creator and, and business owner. And for me, Buzzfeed was sort of stop along that journey to get the education I needed to, con to continue on. I think there's a lot of parallels there from being an athlete, um, yeah. where as an athlete, you have coaches in most of your facets of what you're doing, right? Like I'm assuming what, as a professional cyclist, you had a coach, yes, right? And maybe you had a different strength coach and maybe you had a nutritionist or something like, and you have coaches in all these areas. And I think as an entrepreneur, as a content creator, what's funny is, I don't know if you know this, but we actually spent a week at Buzzfeed doing like a, like a academy essentially there. That was like an education. Wait, when was I this there? This was in 2017. 2017. Yeah. Yeah. What month? I have no uh, idea. Okay. That we I have may no, have it was overlapped. Cold. It was cold outside. I remember there's that. a video yeah. on our YouTube channel about yeah. it, so you yes. may be in, you may be in the background. You, you might be in it, uh, but yeah. Were y'all we, at the y'all were at Siren Studios then? Mm -hmm. That's okay. right. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. So we spent a week there, and we did everything you're describing. We actually show in in this like this week long edit that we did um, that showed us like learning how to identify our audience, learning mm -hmm. how to write titles, you know, learning how to brainstorm thumbnails. Like it was school that we never had traditional, there was no, there is no traditional YouTube school. Yeah. It's funny how you said that you had class on yeah. titles and thumbnails because we showed up the first day and it was school. 
Yeah. And yeah. both of us were like, we hate school. We were panicked. <laughs> we, we, were panicked. We, were we were panicked. Like, what yeah. did we just sign up for? We have to be in when school. When class ended, yeah. we would go out into the hall and be like, I can't believe we signed up for this. Yeah. I can't believe we're doing well, this. Well, there's a lot of anxiety as like entrepreneurs who are like, this is not productive. Like, yeah. We should be- Like we're losing money being here. We should be in our studio making mm. videos. We should not be here for a week. And then by the end, it was a complete, I mean, we reflect on that week as like some of the most interesting lessons of ever course. learned. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's there's obviously general like, connotations with BuzzFeed as, as a organization and as, you know, a creative <laughs> studio, but you can't like spending the week there, you can't deny the skill set that they've crafted in the, in that, you know, in of that course. office I and mean, that studio. Whether or not you like the videos, yeah. everyone has heard of BuzzFeed. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And they've done an amazing <laughs> job of doing that. And even some of the formats that have come out of BuzzFeed worth it, I think is a great example. Yeah like unbelievable, right? Like there's- And the, the creators that have come out of Unsolved, yes. yeah. The creators that have kind of emerged from that school of, of content have built massive platforms, including yourself. So I do think uh, that is a really interesting thing to talk about around taking a job, doing something that you eventually want to do is not necessarily something to look down upon or even I feel no. like the culture right now of creators is like just go independent immediately. Like- right. You know, it's almost like a straight to the league vibe. You said it exactly correct in that I think there's definitely a culture of quit your job, worked for me, it's definitely gonna work for you. I I it, I didn't do that. I mean, I view working for a company or even another creator and their company as paid grad school. Go yes. to learn, mm -hmm. learn everything you can. And when you feel ready to graduate and do your own thing, do it. I mean, for me, I, I was saving money for an entire year before I quit my job and like making a plan. Mm. I prepped videos for six months leading up to turning in my two weeks on the weekends, not during work hours on the weekends. <laughs> 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 Want to make that very clear um, because that's, that's what you have to do. And for me, again, in, in my background, you know, what my dad really drilled into me about entrepreneurship is you can, you can go towards fear and you can go towards risk, but you better have a plan. Mm. There's no yeah. point in jumping off a cliff without some sort of parachute or, or safety yeah. net as, as a backup. And so for me, I had like three months of savings, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah. That, that's <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people also like don't have a plan. I feel like yes. especially like young people coming out of college and that's the best time to get a job. Like for me, that's the first thing I did. I got a job working at a hotel and whatever I chose to do after I got out of work showed me maybe what I did want to do. Yes. And that was like filming and editing on my own time, right? So sometimes like just getting any job is a step towards figuring out what you want to do, Absolutely. even if you hate yeah. that job. And now today there's so many opportunities to have a job doing a creative thing. Um, I, on the other side, also coming from an Indian background uh, with an entrepreneurial father who you know, immigrated and kind of had, was like in survival mode and had to figure something out and did, I actually, my storytelling as a kid was almost the opposite, which was just like, just jump so that you have to survive and then find your, mm. climb your way out. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what I did. I was just like, all right, I'm just going to start something and see well, that's how great. it goes. And that works for a lot of creators. Yeah. I'd say that though, we could have, I could have had a more accelerated path if I didn't think like that um, at times. I think there's some of it that's like, you have to have that so you know how to you know, solve problems in a, in a very unique way and, and do stuff just by yourself. Um, but we had the same experience when we went and our, com our first company got acquired and we got to work within a company that was building and monetizing YouTube 
properties, we both refer to that as our grad school. Definitely. Like we, yeah. and, and it was our paid grad school. Um, we left that company with no plan and not really a, you know, proper, what you're describing, we did not do. We just jumped and we were like, let's start a channel called Colin and Samir and see what happens. Well, it's working. And, well, it's four <laughs> yeah, years yeah, later. Yeah. yeah, it's four years yeah. later now. Um, but yeah, that, that, that is something that I oftentimes look at creators and say, if you have the opportunity to go work with a creator or work at a creative company, go take that. Yes. Hone your craft and then step out. Like, cause you're going to find, this is all a journey of self-discovery, right? Like I can imagine that when you first started working at Buzzfeed and making videos, challenge accepted was not something that immediately clicked. No. You did do some challenge videos there, right? I did some like physically taxing videos. The there. UFC. Yes. yes, I video. did a video yes. where I trained like a UFC fighter for right. 60 days. I did a video where I trained for a marathon in 10 weeks. Got it. So what did you learn like from transitioning to becoming independent? What was there anything that was like, oh, wow, this is really different now. Meaning like making videos within a company versus making videos independently. Like, was there a big stark difference or a learning curve for anything beyond even just making the videos, running the business, anything like that? Or did you feel like it was a pretty smooth transition? It was definitely a big transition. Um, some of the positives were at the full-time job, there were a lot of restrictions on what we could or couldn't do at that time outside of work. Um, and in many ways, I actually felt like we were sort of sheltered from the YouTube community at large. Um, and so it was really nice to be able to make those connections outside and yeah. sort of do something without having to have it go through a bunch of approvals. Um, I think the other thing that I sort of realized also is that there have been several creators who have left Buzzfeed and get a million followers in a week, you know, try guys, Sophia Nygaard, mm -hmm. incredible creators who are able to carry that over. But it's also on you as a creator to keep that momentum going. A shout out only goes so far or people knowing you from somewhere mm -hmm. else. And we've seen that. I mean, there have been plenty of people who have been shouted out by huge creators. You have a massive bump. It goes great for a month. And then sometimes they even quit or fall off entirely. So I, I sort of knew this wasn't really a learning. I was like, this is going to, you know, my YLF BuzzFeed video will probably do really well, but it's on me to have three more viral videos right in the can, ready to go to hit the algorithm and the recommended page as soon as this goes out. How did you navigate that in the very beginning? You, you get that bump from leaving BuzzFeed. You know you have to focus on the creative. You need to have good videos coming out. But at the same time, you're now on your own from a sales and business perspective. Like in the very beginning, how did you navigate that? So I sort of strategically was ready such that when any video went viral, that was when I started reaching out to agents and managers, like right after I had a bump, mm -hmm. because I was like, this is the best time. I, I look you know, yeah. better than I did a month ago. Yep. And I was able to get representation pretty quickly, which was really nice. So I had that taken care of, but in terms of building a team, I mean, it was a lot to navigate because I was also kind of like I mentioned earlier, I strategically wanted to hire people from traditional. Um, traditional is, uh, and with that, it was not only hiring them, but also training them on digital and getting them accustomed to all of that. So that was a, a huge learning experience as well. And a lot of it was, you know, starting as freelance and then eventually moving people to full time. Can you describe the primary difference between people trained in traditional and what they need to learn about digital? For oh people who are watching, just for people who are watching, let's say there's people who are watching who are in the traditional entertainment space. Like what... What is the 
key difference and what do you need to learn? I think you have to be a fan of the content. I think being a fan of the platform and the content, whether it's YouTube, TikTok, whatever it is, that is going to teach you so much more than I could sitting there explaining to you the differences between the two. I think if you are going to a film school that is focused in traditional, you have to also just consume a ton of the content at the same time. And then also understand like what's really interesting about digital is because it's non-union, a lot of the jobs sort of flow into one another. And so being prepared for that, I think is also really helpful. I mean, a lot of people aren't just producers, they're predators now. They're producing, they're editing. What a tough directing. name for that job, by the I know. way. I've, I thought that's in the beginning. <laughs> I didn't think that name was going to stick. I didn't think yeah. that name was going to stick. The first time I heard it, I was like, predator. That producer, can, editor. Can you imagine yes. being yeah. like, that's my job title, I'm a I'm predator, a predator. Yeah. which is a lot of people's job title? Yeah. Um, yeah. Tough. Yeah. We were just called. We're producers. working to rebrand it. Yeah. If you are a predator right now, we're. <laughs> well, there, we can that's workshop the problem. It. There isn't yeah. really a name until creator sort of came around. Yeah. I think creator is probably a better title for that. But I think expecting things to flow interdepartmentally, um, yeah. they're not going to be as segmented on a digital set. And with that, you also have to protect yourself. So on our sets, we follow a lot of the union rules still. What do you think creators can learn about what's happening in traditional right now? I think there's a lot that creators can learn about from traditional, specifically in the content I make. It's, it's a lot about being very well organized, having a schedule structure plan. I mean, there are content creators I know that don't know about the six hour lunch break rule. I'm like, you got to break your crew and have, have them have lunch after six hours. I don't know that. Rule. I didn't know that. Rule. Yeah. What's yeah. the rule? Yeah, no, I, Every six hours you have to provide a meal on a film set. Hmm. No, no one gets any ideas. This, sorry, is, no. this, is, this isn't a traditional oh, film set. Wow. Mutiny is taking yeah, place in our office is, right yeah. now. You just, Michelle, uh, yeah. Michelle. <laughs> this is a non-union show, just so everyone knows. Yeah. 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 Uh, you will well, not get it's lunch. Different when it's, no lunch. It's different yeah. when it's full time. You know, We didn't have that at BuzzFeed either. But um, you know, like even showing up to production meetings with potential collaborators and partners and having a schedule for the day. Um, Some people just show up and figure it out and that works great, but it's also so much more efficient and a better experience for the crew when, when you're really well prepared. I mean, I love Excel. So I spend a lot of time in Excel doing scheduling and planning and safety meetings are really important with the content we make too. So I, I just think there's a lot to be learned about like, being prepared and thinking of every single detail. I think that's really important. And I do think that there are creators like yourself that are moving YouTube in this direction of much more professional production. I would love to continue to do something in the traditional space. I think it's awesome. I loved doing the show on HBO Max, Karma. YouTube star Michelle Carré hosts a new series on HBO Max, Karma. That summer that I did that show completely transformed who I am as a content creator oh. and hmm. was one of those like opportunities where I could, I could learn something from traditional. Karma was a kid's survival show where they took 18 teenagers, put them in the wilderness to survive for three weeks, and whoever won, won $50,000. So it was a pretty incredible show and an amazing opportunity to like be the Jeff Probst of. I loved the opportunity because a lot of my mentors on the show were people from Amazing Race, from um, Biggest Loser, from these huge shows, and they were 
literally directing me on how I could be a better host. Mm. And all of that knowledge I have brought back to my channel. If you watch the, cool. the videos before I did Karma and after, huge difference in terms of my personal camera presence, how I interview somebody is completely different now versus before. Asking things that the audience would want to know, not knowing anything. So sometimes in interviews, I felt like I would skip right to a specific point I wanted to make versus now I'm really thinking about how an audience member who is not here having the experience I am having would really want something broken down. So far more detailed, um, putting, putting things right into the hands of the audience because a host is there to be the, you know, the, the voyeur, the conduit for the audience. You know, sometimes you ask a question interview and they give you a really long winded answer. You can't use that in the cold open for the Colin and Samir show. So sometimes I have them repeat it. Can you say that again in one sentence? Hmm. Great. That's going to be our cold open. Interesting. Wow. Very hmm. cool. Did you feel like when you went on that show, because you are a showrunner, a producer, a director, like as a creator, right? You're all of those things. Did you feel like you could exist better in that set? I did. I felt like talking with the EPs about how the video would, the, the episode, I should say, would be edited was a conversation they had not ever had with another yeah. host. Yeah. So this is something that we talk about a lot in our office around how this next generation of entertainers are all going to come from the internet, which means if you come from the internet, it means you have almost played every role where you mentioned to, to be successful on the internet, you have to be a fan and yes. you have to consume content on the internet to be successful, right? So you're, you're playing the role of audience, then you're playing the role of creator, which is an amalgamation of director, producer, you know, CFO, COO, you're, you're playing all these different roles um, and you're the distributor and then you're, you know, going and doing it again. And then when you go onto a Hollywood set where you have a very singular role, I think these like multi-hyphenites of creators have an upper hand going into these spaces. Oh, yeah. And it helps everyone else on set. Um, yeah. So I think it just creates this like 360 awareness. Also, even just knowing where the camera is and like, okay, I'm talking to you, but I'm going to turn my chair this way. So more of my face can be seen. Like yeah. those are all things we learn from trial and error in YouTube. And it starts by necessity. Like when you start a YouTube channel, you're doing everything by yourself because you have to. And then it becomes this amazing, amazing superpower that I definitely think helped me on karma. So does that experience on karma now make you want to be proactive about maybe pitching a show that you would be the host of? I would love to host another show. I, I think it would be amazing. I mean, I loved that experience and it was also nice to only do one thing on that show. It was really, really nice. Um, I think when the right opportunity presents itself, whether it's something we come up with and pitch or an opportunity where I step in as talent, I am so game for that. My primary focus right now is my YouTube channel, just because, you know, as the theme of all of these interviews y'all have been doing, everything comes back to the content. It's the only thing I can control. I don't have to wait for a green light. And when I think about, should I spend five days of the work week on a pitch for a show where I'm going to have to explain what youtube.com is to a bunch of people in suits, would I rather do that? Or would I rather sit down with our editors and producers and bang out the next three yeah. months of content mm -hmm. that will not only net us more, you know, immediate funds and opportunities, but also like, I think that if you can create something by yourself that grows on a YouTube channel, all of that other stuff comes mm -hmm. like, it's like a magnet. 
And when you let go of that, that's when the opportunities start to fade. So Great. I want to hold on to my own lifeline. And for something like karma, during that experience, you can't work on your YouTube channel, I would assume. I did. Right? You did. So <laughs> um, I didn't want to give up the YouTube channel. They're like, well, are you going to pause? What are you going to do? And I said, don't worry about it. You're never going to hear about my YouTube channel. Because that was one of the concerns the producers mm -hmm. had. They're like, we've worked with YouTube talent. It becomes this point of tension where they want to go and film and we can't. I said, you're never going to hear about my YouTube channel. So every day I woke up at four and I drove an hour and a half down the mountain to an ice skating rink. At this time, I was also training like an Olympic figure skater. I found a coach, had them drive in. And every morning before set, I would train at the ice rink for two hours, drive back up the mountain, shower, go to set and never talked about it. Wow. <laughs> that's really But that's cool. what I do all yeah. the time. Like last week I had... I was doing cheerleading and boxing. So I would go to cheerleading. We would do tumbling. They're throwing me in the air, eat lunch, go to boxing for two hours. How do breaks play in to the schedule? Like personal breaks for you? Personal breaks? Yeah. Like does that, do you like hit sleeping? that point? <laughs> yeah, <everything. laughs> yeah. yeah, actually I have a great sleep schedule. Um, we, we're very clear on weekends off. So previously at the beginning of the channel, I would train a lot on the weekends because it wouldn't interfere with, the nine, sure. nine to five aspect of our job. And now I have realized training is my job. Like that is like me being an athlete on the channel that has to be factored into the nine to five. So I, I don't do that anymore. I, it's always during the workday that I'm training. Do you ever think about the fact that it's just you who is the ultimate engine behind all this? Something that we think about that, like the channel's called Colin and Samir. So like a video doesn't go out unless we're in it. Do you ever think about that when it comes to planning the next phase of your business? Absolutely. Someone I look up to a lot is um, Blogilates, for example. Mm -hmm. She has Cassie's multiple. Awesome. Yeah. Cassie, incredible, amazing. Yeah. Um, she has her brand with her face on it, and she's also developing other brands that don't have her face on it. I think that's really smart. And I feel like I'm sort of in a phase where I'm still figuring out exactly what that would mean for me. I do have a lot of ideas. But right now, and something I really enjoyed about the Yes Theory interview y'all did was how they were sort of discussing that they've, they've branched out, they've done other things, but everything comes back to content. Yeah. And for me this year, that has been my biggest focus. In the pandemic, we did a lot of stuff. We, we built the app, which has been amazing. We did a little bit of merchandise. I did an online course. Those all were all amazing things. And now that the world has opened up a little bit more and we can film again to the capacity I want to film, in 2022, I really want to like explode the channel. Yeah. That, yeah. That's my biggest goal. Jimmy said that to us, Mr. Beast, when we were with him, he just kind of looked at us and he was like, that one of the, the things he thinks creators make a mistake on is diversifying too early. Because he was like, at the end of the day, if you actually every week just focus on making the best video possible, that's what's going to unlock the world for you. Yes. And it actually, you have to have a lot more patience than you think in like crafting a best in class product. And you look at some of the brands in the past that have focused on a singular thing and being the best in class at that thing, they're often the brands that last the longest. And I think that is something hard because in our industry, it's like things just start, opportunities just are coming at you every week and they're all really exciting and really interesting. I'm curious just to go back to, as you started this channel, your independent channel, did everything just kind of work? 
or were there challenges in the beginning? Like, oh did you goodness. start posting videos like the Victoria's Secret video, which is a fantastic video? There's 10 million views. Like, was it just like, oh, wow, I make these videos and everyone loves them and, and money's coming in and everything works? Absolutely not. Okay. I mean, there have <laughs> definitely been hills and valleys throughout the whole process. And sort of what we were mentioning earlier is when you get a shout out or you're transferring an audience from somewhere else to yours, that's a nice bump in the beginning, but you have to deliver week after week on following up on that promise to all of those people. So, I mean, and I guess, let me think about this. Hmm. The Victoria's Secret video was a year into me being independent. And I released that video and it didn't do well for the first several weeks. It was like a couple hundred thousand views maybe for a video that I spent five weeks training for. I was right. like a little bit like disappointed. And then out of nowhere, it exploded in the algorithm weeks later, which is very unique, I think, because I feel like we put a lot of pressure on the first 24 hours or even seven days of a video's um, success. And for me on my channel, I've actually found that evergreen success is the most lucrative and the most exciting, which is probably why earlier when I was, we were talking about like, if a video doesn't perform to standard, I always like to wait a little bit because mm -hmm. sometimes I'll check back a few months later and it's like, Oh, it hit a million views. Right. I didn't even realize it. So that video, when that did well, really opened my eyes to what if I just commit more fully to all of the challenges I'm taking on. And I really find this unique way to trend Jack stuff that's trending right now, but also make it more elongated documentary style. Can you uh, speak a little bit more on trend jacking, I guess, or like what you mean by that? Yeah. So it's a term, I guess, that ha I've only heard recently. Okay. Um, and it's something I learned a lot about at BuzzFeed actually was every morning at BuzzFeed, they would send us an email with, these are the five things trending on Facebook, on YouTube, whatever, best performing videos of the past 24 hours. No clue how they pulled out that information, but we would get an email every day and we would see, you know, best hashtags on Twitter. And because of the output and the turnaround was so quick there, we could quickly be like, oh, Kim Kardashian is in the news. Someone, someone out there make a Kim Kardashian video and someone would do it. Someone trained like Kim Kardashian. Somebody, somebody. somebody. Yeah. <laughs> someone in the office did that. And so what I sort of wanted to do on my own channel was project trends. So one of the first series that I did was a series where I trained like different superheroes. So I trained with Spider-Man's lead stunt double. I trained with Batman's lead stunt double. I trained for a period of time. And then at the end, we would film like a cinematic fight scene of me assuming the role as a character and really putting my skills to the test. And what I did was project the trend. So I took the year slate of movies and TV shows coming out. And I said, okay, Spider-Man Homecoming is coming out in July. You know, this other Marvel property is coming out in September and we will work backwards. So if I want a Spider-Man video to come out the day the Spider-Man movie comes out, I'm, I should start filming that three months ahead. And that's sort of where we would filter and literally release a viral video the same day the movie releases because it's gonna be everywhere. It's going to be all the Google searches. It's going to spike in Google trends for that opening weekend. And that was sort of my initial strategy. Wow. That's really interesting. I love that. That's cool. Because hmm. um, it seems like a lot of people kind of look at that concept of like social hacking or, or like trend hacking, I'll call it, um, as like something that's already existing. There's a wave that's already happening on YouTube and then you hop on that wave. Yeah. I would say that's how we operate. That's how we operate. Like, sure. We're very reactionary. Right? Yeah. Well, 
I mean, when you have the opportunity to be reactionary and produce something super quickly, yeah. then yeah, it absolutely works. But even for as recently as our 911 dispatch video, that video has been edited for months and we held it for emergency telecommunicators week um, so that all of those publications would already be celebrating 911 dispatchers. Oh, great. There's a piece of content that talks mm. about how this job is made. You're kind of like doing the job for the journalist. That was actually mm. a lot of my initial approach on the channel of, I would make a video like Victoria's Secret, and then I would reach out to all of the publications, Daily Mail, Cosmo, whatever, that would normally make an article about this type of thing and push my stuff to them. Mm. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but that was sort of an early, um, that was sort of an early, technique I used to try and get our, our videos on other platforms. I love that idea of thinking about doing the job for the writers. Yes. yes. Which is similar to the, the agent thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Making it, it easy for them. It's, it's really important. We talk about this spectrum of being an artist uh, and a distributor, right? Like a distributor is the person in the studio who's like, we need to make another Spider-Man so that, because people buy tickets for Spider-Man. And the artist is someone who's like, I'm making this, I don't care what anyone thinks, right? This is my expression. And creators are somewhere in the middle, but probably shade a little bit over to the distributor side where they have to think about how is the audience gonna receive this and how do I get this in front of as many people as possible? The artist is not holding the 911 dispatch video. Right. Like when the artist feels it's done, it's going out. Yeah. Right, like the distributor is what you're doing. Sure. It's very strategic. I guess I was gonna ask, do you agree with that? Do you agree that you have to have more of like a distribution mindset? Of course. To make it as a creator. Of course, constantly distribution mindset, I think. And for me, the artistic part of it was making the video, making the edit perfect. I'm very, very proud of how that edit turned out. I think it's an amazing video. And then the distributor within me says, wait a second, we could you know, get more views. We could really you know, grow the channel strategically. Now. Can I prove that releasing it during National Emergency Telecommunicators Week actually made a huge impact? I don't know. But a lot of the comments were like, hey, I'm celebrating yeah. this this mm. week and thanks for you know honoring the job that my mom does, whatever yeah. it may be. And another reason we held it was because we wanted to do three banger releases in a row. So in April, we released the, the video where I went to etiquette school. We released... 911 and we released SWAT all within mm. two weeks of each other. And that month was our best performing month of all time on the channel. And we seven X our AdSense in just wow. that month by holding the videos and having them, you know, come out one after another. Cause I don't know if you guys have seen this, but if you have a video do well, it will typically give a early bump to right. the, the video directly yep. following. Cause it's going to appear and recommend it. So we're like, well, I think these are going to do well. Let's group them together. And it worked pretty well. There's so much distribution strategy in that. I love that. I yeah. would also say those three videos have amazing thumbnails. That was also a big change we yeah, made. <laughs> that, it feels like there was like mm -hmm. a, a shift because those are like incredibly well-crafted thumbnails. Thank you. And I, I'm I curious say, about that. Yeah. yeah, Thumbnails have been personally my weakest everything because they drive me crazy. It's like we work, you know, for a year sometimes on a video and it's like the night before, oh my God, we have to make a thumbnail. Right. And I don't know if y'all have been seeing on Twitter, I'm sure you have, I feel like you guys follow some of the same people I do, where there is this new 
echelon of <laughs> thumbnail Twitter artists, <laughs> yeah. um, like yeah. Venture or yeah. Jay yeah. or yeah. TKG. They're yeah. very talented. There's some people. really niche thumbnail Twitter accounts too. There's one that's called Thumbnail Colors that we seen that find one? ourselves what? featured on, which that's, is like- That's more about like the art of yeah, the thumbnail. Yeah, it's like, what are the dominant colors in this thumbnail? Well, um, that's, I guess, good psychology to understand. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> earlier this year, I joined a, like a accountability group with some other yeah, YouTubers. Great. And we meet every week and critique each other's thumbnails and titles. It's amazing. And I hadn't experienced that level of feedback and, you know, self-critiquing since I worked at BuzzFeed, honestly. And that has really helped me hone a lot of the thumbnails. So from there, I got, you know, we, we connected with some of these amazing Twitter thumbnail artists who have been working with us. Um, and it is just amazing what they are able to do. I don't even understand. They'll deliver an asset to me and I'm like, how did this happen? Oh wow! How on planet earth did this come out of the photo I delivered to you? If you look at some of their before and afters, it's insane. So very impressive work by them. And I, I do think that thumbnails have been. It's a massive part of distribution though, because you're right. You can make the best video possible. But if you don't have a good poster. Yeah. Yeah. You have a split second, maybe less to get someone to actually watch. It's such a simple concept that like, if people don't click on the video, they're not going to watch it. But mm -hmm. to craft that in a world where the competition is increasingly high for people's attention, I think that is like such an interesting um, challenge. And it has like created a whole market of jobs of yes. people who like how important to your revenue a thumbnail designer is, is yeah. really interesting. Not to drive the price up of your thumbnail designer, but <laughs> it, is, it is like a really important role in all of this when it comes to distribution and if people are going to watch your channel or not. But those three thumbnails, I just wanted to say. Thank you. Now on the accountability group, that is a, that is a theme that has kind of come as the creator economy has started to rise and to be this like actual job that people can have and career that people can have accountability groups and, and uh, masterminds or kind of like workshops or something that have emerged. I even went on a trip in January to Colorado with a bunch of creators where we just sat in a cabin and watched each other's channels. Yeah. I want to go. Yeah. And it's so interesting <laughs> that it's, it's essentially, we are pulling some things from what a traditional media company would do and yeah. decentralizing them saying, yes. we're just going to organize ourselves in different pods and do what we would do if we were working all at one big media company together. But what I think is really fascinating about our space is you're meeting with creators that technically you're potentially fighting for attention with them, right? You're actually yeah. competing for viewers attention. But I've found that our space is unbelievably supportive of each other. Like, there's creators sometimes who unsolicited hit us up and are like, hey, this video would probably do better if you did this. It's like, what? That's awesome. What a I think it's because there's still enough attention to go around yeah. for everyone. Like it's like, not a scarcity yeah, mindset yet, but it's a really interesting thing that, that we have that in our community. I think it's because like a, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, whatever sure. that saying is, I'm butchering it. Um, because the more people we get watching YouTube, more eyes we all get in a way maybe, but mm -hmm. there's yeah. still this like misunderstanding, right? Like Jimmy Kimmel this week during, uh, oh my God. Set. did you see this? Yeah. I almost launched yeah, into yeah. orbit seeing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. He said, um, YouTube does not deserve its own upfront. YouTube is not television. YouTube is medicine we use to tranquilize our kids. 
And I was like, huh. wait a second, Kimmel. And I actually wrote a LinkedIn post about this because I was upset. Um, but I was like, as we all do, as we all do, we all turn to LinkedIn, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I think Kimmel's channel has done 68 million views in the past 30 days. I would bet that more people watch him on YouTube than on TV. And the people who are watching him on YouTube have no idea how to watch him on TV. Like, same. TV, I, I don't have without to YouTube, he might be extinct to most people. No one even knows he exists. So I think it's like we still have this kind of collective passion around proving everyone wrong. Exactly. Um, yeah. That I think is what binds oh. us all together, right? It's That's like, a strange tweet. It's a, it was a really strange comment. It was part of his uh, his upfront for for whatever network. And I'm like, you don't even know what, ne- yeah, I don't even yeah, know what yeah, networks yeah. he's on. I know it's ABC only because I watched a clip of him on YouTube right, last night. Right, yeah. right, right. And it's like, isn't he buddy, buddy with Mark Rover? Yeah. Weren't they making a show together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, man. Yeah. Hmm. But maybe he did it to put himself in the headlines. Who knows? Distribution strategy from Kimmel there. I think I'm pretty sure Lily Singh said this. I, I, I'm pretty positive she said this. I, I hope I'm not butchering this, but she said something that really stood out to me a few years ago where it doesn't matter how successful you are. You are the only person that cares the most about your success. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I think that is actually one of the wonderful byproducts of this like entrepreneurial wave is that people are having to learn how to believe in themselves. Uh, you have no other choice. You know, like for us, when we, we've been doing this for 10 years and there's been a lot of times where this didn't work a lot, where we're making extremely little amounts of money, but still trying to make videos and sitting together and being like, I believe we can, we have it in us to have this be a career. We just haven't solved it. And the, the perseverance to keep going through that is I think what we're all learning collectively in this career now. And I feel like that bravery goes away over time because we all had it when we decided yes. to make the URL, you know, mm. to make the account mm. and to post that first video. That in and of itself takes so much bravery. And, you know, you get caught in this place of, well, the videos aren't performing as well, or maybe they are. And, yeah. and you start to self doubt. And if only we could tap into why the hell did I think I was brave enough to quit my job and, and think it would be self-sustaining. Where, mm. where did that come from? I need that today. That is the fear is a fascinating ingredient in our decision-making. And it does, I think as success increases somehow, and I would speak for, for myself in this, fear actually becomes more of an ingredient in your decision-making as your success increases because you have something to lose. And I think that is one of the most fascinating things where you would think you have more confidence in your decision-making. Sometimes it's, it's riddled with more fear because you don't want it to go away. You know what it took to get there and you're, you're terrified that it could all go away in the same amount of time or quicker. When you said, I need that today, is there something specific you're referencing or like a feeling that you have right now? Oh, I feel great today. today you I feel great. great. Yeah. <laughs> I just mean, there are times when I say to myself, I need that today. Um, you know, when I'm about to be thrown in a basket toss at cheerleading, I need that bravery today. Yeah, yeah. When I'm mm. about to get punched in the face at boxing sparring for the video that we're filming right now, I need that bravery today. <laughs> But yeah, to come on the Colin and Samir show, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you guys give me water. <laughs> <laughs> we got, yeah, we got coconut water, cold yeah, brew, whatever you need. So that flow alkaline. <laughs> why do you? Why do you? Why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, why are you the way that you are? The question is is essentially like, 
why does all of this matter to you? Like, why does growth about growth on the channel matter? Why does this show matter? Like, what what is this um, for you personally outside of business success and and audience growth? Like, what why? I think there are a lot of reasons that are a why for me. You know, I didn't see someone who looks like me on Disney Channel growing up. Sure, of course. Um, I want to see more women kicking ass on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Of course. But also I think like philosophers come up with the, the sentiments of life that we should live by and artists are the people who communicate that. And for me in a way with challenge accepted, I not only want to inspire people to go out and, and do the dreams that they have for themselves, or maybe even pursue a passion or a profession that they wouldn't have otherwise. I also want to highlight the people who are doing this every day. Sometimes people will say, Oh, like, how are you doing this? You're so strong. And I'm like, I did it for a month. What about the person who's been doing it their whole life and have been risking their lives to, to save others and, and to make, make miracles happen? To me, those are the real heroes. And that's who I want to highlight on my channel. As an influencer, I feel a massive responsibility to uplift um, unheard voices and, and just share more raw experiences. I think that a lot of the professions we show on our channel have only been shown in a very polished light previously mm. or the light of, you know, a quick news clip here and there, or even a self-produced documentary. And what I want to show is real raw and authentic. And that's why a lot of times the videos have a very strong emotional component. You see me fail, you see me um, hurting and struggling because that's part of what it takes to get to the professional level. And I don't want to hide that. I want to honor the people who do it. What, if anything, keeps you up at night about all this? Like, what, I, what do I have? I mean, I have anxiety, period, 24-7. <laughs> just my anxiety. That's just, what keeps me anxiety. up at night. Yeah. Um, I think that what I spend a lot of time and mental energy on is making sure that we are supporting the people that work with us. Um, you know, my biggest fear is it all fails. And we, you know, not only is my life impacted by that, but a bunch of people who work with us are as well. I think about that a lot. And that really drives me to go harder. Do I want to wake up and go to training today? No, but it's going to make a good video. And that video impacts the lives of many people surrounding me. Mm -hmm. That's how I have to be operating. It's like a family. Like, I feel like a mom, like I'm not a mom. I could never, you know, relate to that experience yet. But when I think about it, I'm like, do we have enough snacks for the car ride down to San Diego for mm. this You know, like those yeah, are the yeah, things yeah. I'm thinking of. And um, I, I yeah. think that's potentially unique to creative businesses, maybe not. But, you know, I think the way we all talk about this, like that sounds like you could pluck that answer and put it into a startup founder, right? Who's which is what we're doing. These are startups. Yeah. These are media startups that, that we've created. Um, but in the creative craft, I think it's more emotional than other crafts, which makes it more familial. Like I think YouTube groups that are now emerging where you have like creator plus six team members, a mix of producers and editors. And that's I've why just, it hurts so much more when it fails. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And it impacts you when someone puts a lot of work into something and they have a disappointing result because it's like, you're all this family. Right.